Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You you will at some point hit a breaking point and that might not be expected and look at it and learn from it because it will be a, a moment that probably helped you realise who you really are, good and bad, how you looked after yourself or others around you at those low points. With a combined 15 years experience on the front lines of diplomacy and conflict, David Knopf's career has taken him to all corners of the globe, specialising in remote leadership, isolation, resilience and leadership through adversity. David's story is a unique example of adventure and challenges in the harshest environments and circumstances. David's story began as a platoon commander in the Solomon Islands, after which his lessons in empathy and adaptability carried him to Pakistan, where he navigated the ever-changing political landscape. He then took a sabbatical from diplomacy and worked as a freelance photographer based in Istanbul, following the stories of refugees escaping the growing conflict in Syria to the ancient history of the Mediterranean. As the conflict grew in Syria and the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, threatened regional security, David was part of Australia's contribution to operational enduring freedom and the international effort to defeat ISIS. Seeking a change of environment and pace, but looking for a role that would draw on all his previous experience, David embarked on an Antarctic exhibition to lead Australia's Davis Research Station for a year. What he and his team couldn't have predicted was that whilst they were away, a global pandemic would change the world they left behind and find them isolated longer than they ever expected. David's story is not like any I've heard before, and I've been really looking forward to sitting down with him and digging a little deeper. David, welcome to the One Question podcast. It is fabulous to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. I can't wait to get into this. Yeah, it's going to be fun. You have so many things to talk about. So let's kick in. If there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Failure. We all do it. It's life's greatest teacher, yet we don't talk about it. We gloss over it. We look at everyone's successes and no one wants to talk about the times when it didn't didn't go to plan and they didn't win and they failed. Yeah, good topic. Straight to the point, which kind of strikes me is that you're that kind of guy. <laughs> you're like, right, failure. We're going to talk about failure. So, David, why is this a topic you're so passionate about? Yeah, I mean, so I've got an interesting story. I've had a few different careers over my time and everyone, you know, when you introduce yourself, they go, what have you done? I say, oh, I'm an Antarctic expedition leader. I've been a former diplomat. I was a soldier and all sorts of, and people go, oh, wow, wow, wow. And you go, yeah, but there's there's all, also like a kind of ghost resume of all the jobs and all the dreams and all the ideas and things that i didn't achieve, but in so many ways they got me to where I am. And I think that's equally important. That's something we don't always talk about. But even times when you don't achieve your dreams, but you have to kind of take a step back and reassess and go, well, actually, did I actually want that? Or can I achieve the same thing differently? And I look back at where I might have ended up. Like at, at high school, I think I wanted to be a fighter pilot. 
and I'm sure I would have had a great time. I ended up being too tall and my eyes weren't quite good enough. But it was a case of, well, that, that, that to me as a 17-year-old was gutting, like gut-wrenching. I'm like, well, what do I do now? Yet if I looked back and, and I, people ask me this question, if I could go back and talk to 17-year-old me now and say, hey, mate, you're going to end up 38, best-selling author, you've traveled the world, you've led Antarctic expeditions, you've done all sorts of cool stuff. You'd be like, well, yeah, that's that's great. And would you, st- would you trade it all in to be a fighter pilot? And you go, well, it's different. They both ended up pretty pretty great kind of options in life. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I think sometimes we don't take that time to kind of look back and draw the dots, I guess it were, to get to where you are now and reflect on that as well. And so when you do look back and reflect on some of the things that you've done, what have been some of your greatest failures, if that's how you word it? Well, that, that was probably one of the first ones. But then after that, I, I went to, to university, started a, a double degree of engineering and arts. That's an interesting combo. I know, it was. <laughs> it was, I mean, mainly it was, you know, I got into engineering out at Monash, which I was, I was excited to, to start. And then on the second round offers, they said, oh, do you want to do a double degree with arts as well? I thought, oh, sure, why not? But two years into it, I realized that there was nothing about engineering that was appealing to me. I was passing some subjects but failing others. And kind of had this crossroads of like, you're either got to double down and do better at that or go down a different path. And at the time I joined the Army Reserve and I was really enjoying that and then had the option to then go over to the Solomon Islands in 2007 as a peacekeeper, as a platoon commander. So I finished my officer training and had this great opportunity. But at the same time, it meant I'd have to drop out of engineering and, and fail that. And the overwhelming common sense thing was to not drop out of engineering not kind of be a failed engineer, but to finish that, double down, finish that, and then look at what do you want to do after that? Because in terms of like going forward in life, you're going to be better off with an engineering degree than at that point, no degree and a bit of time as an army officer. I do remember thinking like, geez, am I going to regret this? But it then came down to like, all right, you're going to have to kind of fail at that and drop out. But if you're a good army officer and then you finish your arts degree and then it kind of took me in a whole different direction, I look back and go, well, actually, that wasn't failure. It was a, a conscious and unconscious decision that that wasn't what I wanted to do and that wasn't where I wanted to be to reset and go back and start again and kind of go in a different path. And that was another formative one. And there were a few later on in my, in my other career as well. You know, I kind of love the whole no regrets motto in life. And, you know, for me, part of that is not only, you know, doing those things like that you really want to do and someone holds you back or, you know, have doubts or whatever – but also if you've done something that you kind of feel a bit icky about or you think, oh, wish, you know, that was embarrassing. I wish I hadn't done that. Or I failed miserably and, you know, if I had my time again, maybe I wouldn't have done that. But how do you kind of give people advice or, or words around that sort of sense of, you know, having that fear of failure? You know, how do you overcome that thinking that this could maybe not work or, you know, I'm going to fail at this so I won't try or I won't even start? You know, how do you kind of advise people in that regard? Yeah, great, great question. To kind of jump through to the more recent story then is, so I've got a book out at the moment that was based on my time. I was I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to be leading an Antarctic station uh, in 2019 and then into 2020 when the pandemic broke out. And we were supposed to be down there for a year, but ended up stuck down there for a year and a half and had a whole lot of Pretty interesting events along the way to not spoil the event, but I, I do survive. So that, that sort of gives it away. How many people were there with you? 24. So it was a team of 24 on the Antarctic station. And 
when I got back from that trip, it had been a little bit of media attention around it during during COVID. A few people might remember there was a few sort of things like, oh, well, let's just take a moment to think about the people on the Antarctic stations who were always isolated. And there were some great mm-hmm. moments of, of interaction where we like did some advice and did a little advice from the ice video clips and all sorts of things. But after all of that, and I got back to Australia and in the, the, the total of the book's 537 days of winter, which was how long we were away for, and realised that I was I was on a pretty good story, but it was also on a story that wasn't just mine. It was a story of 24 others who were with me. And, you know, for that that long isolated as a team, we all made it through and everyone did an incredible job to, to get through that experience. But it was pretty tough along the way and we certainly weren't all best of friends at the end. We all had good professional relationships, but it was it was pretty tricky. And I, I had the options of – I had a few publishers chasing me and I, I had some options with, with turning it into words and writing a book. But for me, the fear of failure then of like, well, okay, I'm going to walk away from my other career. I'd been on leave without pay from my, my job up in Canberra, which was – I'd been there for 10 years and that was nice and safe and I could have gone back to that and I'd – been on secondment to the Australian Antarctic program. And the last station leader to write a book had sort of never really gone back to the Antarctic program. And there was this vibe of like, oh, if you cash in and write a book, your chances of kind of rejoining the Australian program are, are pretty slim and also might burn your bridges with going back and working with, with government more broadly. And you've kind of gone, hey, I'm I'm out and I'm going to retire. And I'm like, well, at the time I was only 37. So you go, well, I don't want to really retire that early. I, said, I better no. make this book bloody work. Yeah, I better make it work. <laughs> and, but the, the fear of failure around what I'd never written a book before. I, I knew how to string a few words together. So I backed myself in, didn't get a ghostwriter. I'm like, no, no, I reckon I can write a book. Got a coach to help me write it. But I was overwhelmed with then the guilt and the fear of like, oh my God, what have I done? What if this is terrible? What if it, you know, they printed 6,000 copies. What if they're pulping 5,500 of those at the end of the first year because it was crap? And it, I found then that the best way to get through that was to not listen to or not speak to people who haven't written books or, or don't know or who are like, oh no, take the safe option of like, oh, you know, books, you don't make any money out of books these days. No one reads. People are watching Netflix and all this. Like, forget about those voices and go and speak to people that have written books and have told stories. And every single one of them was a hundred percent, mate, great story, write your book. It will be a life-changingly good decision. And sure enough, it, it has been. And and that was something to go like, when you've got that fear of failure, don't go to people for advice who don't have any context around what you're asking to do. Now, obviously, you're going to go to your partner, your, your friends and your family on, on pretty much all your life decisions. But at the same time, if you want to start a, your own business, don't go to a bunch of friends who've never done that because they're all going to say, oh, that's risky, that's dangerous. But if you go to a bunch of small business owners or a small business forum or, or a community, every one of them will say, look, it's going to be tough. You, you might have to accept that you might fail at your first business, but your second or third business it will be what you want. You'll have everything you want out of it. And even if it doesn't work, you'll still be able to go back to being you know, an accountant or whatever it is. And it's that to help you get through your fear of failure. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, I have certain little tricks that I work on with my life about, you know, big decisions or things that I'm nervous about that may not go as planned. What do you do in that regard? Like how how do you kind of navigate that to say, like using the book as an example, that, okay, this might be a failure, may not work, but what do you do to mitigate or to kind of get you through that process to say, okay, I'm going to do it? Yeah, good one. Breaking it down to go, okay, this is this is what I want to do. What are my steps to get there? What are my pathways? What are the kind of 
little things I might need to do to even start that. So for instance, before I even started writing the book, I'm like, right, I'm just going to read a bunch of my favorite books and kind of look at them from a different angle of how they've done it to understand what a good nonfiction book looks like. So that's kind of arming yourself with information. Correct. Yeah. So you're setting yourself up to, to do your research and think about, all right, if I'm going to go down this path, but then also being prepared for failure. And this is the, the stuff I really want to talk about today is going, well, if it doesn't work, how can I? Then now there's, there's the counter arguments to that to say that the best way to motivate humans and the best way will ever work is if there's, there's no fallback, you are 100% committed, sink or swim, that's your option. And that that's one way to live life. That's one way to do things, pretty high risk. But also having steps in place so that, okay, if it doesn't work, how do I revisit that? Or how do we change that and go, all right, well, I've gone down this author path, but it hasn't worked. I can now go either back or sideways or, or to another location or, or a different job or a different role and, and it still be a transition that was worth doing, but I haven't gone all in and just sitting there as a destitute author on the streets a year later because you've spent all your money on your book and you've got no chance. Did you do that though? Did you go there? Like as in, and, and that's probably giving a bit of insight into how I do stuff. So if I'm about to start a new business of which I've done many or a new career or different things, or, you know, it could be a big sporting event or something like in my past being an athlete, I would actually go to the worst scenario. So I go through that. I mean, that's how I deal with it. And I think, what is the worst that can happen? You know, like in starting a new business, it could be that the business fails I lose all my money that I've invested and I have to dig into my savings or sell my house, you know, worst case scenario, depending on what the business is. But, you know, I'd have what I call a red line. So I get to that, what is my red line on this particular decision and what does that look like? And am I prepared to go there and be at that point of selling the house, having no money in the bank? And some of the bigger decisions in life that I've done around businesses and stuff is it was kind of pretty dire, you know, to get to that point. But I was like, actually, I'm always still going to be okay because I know I can go and work in a cafe. I'm employable enough. I'd be all right. You know, like I'd get to a point of saying I'm not below zero. And that was kind of my comfort level. If I lost everything, that was fine. But if I owed money or I was negative, lost everything and I was in, you know, massive debt, that would stress me out. So that's how I navigate that stuff. But I'm curious about how you, you know, I mean, you've had a really diverse career. You know, how do you navigate that kind of, you know, risk factor? What's your risk profile, I guess, before some of these big decisions around the fear of failure? I mean, exactly as you've said there, having your lines, having your limits and, no, and having a, a plan to it. So, okay, the plan is to do this. And no one's how they were starting for small business. If you think it's going to cost you 100 grand, you need 150 grand or you need 200 grand because it's going to cost you more than you think or you've got approval. Same with buying a house. If the bank are going to give you $600,000, don't buy a house worth $600,000, buy one worth 500. And then you've got some buffer zone of if interest rates change or any or you want to do renovations or something. So always have have your limits and your lines, as you've said. So you've got that. The other one I like to think of to, to try and get you out of the the downward spiral that can when you the fear of failure and worried about well, what if it doesn't work? This is you know businesses fail and blah blah blah. Spend equal amount of time daydreaming about what if it works? What if this works? Again, that's going to help you make sure you've got a good plan. If it's a business or a book or a movie or a decision to move into state or something, go. What if this works? What does this look like if it works? And that's worth then taking that risk. If you go, okay, so if it doesn't work, it means that I've got to sell the house or go get a second job or remortgage or, or sell the car and buy a worse car or, or we can't travel. We have to go to Sorrento instead of Sorrento in Italy on holidays next next year. 
but if it works, you know, we're on a yacht in Monaco in 10 years or, or whatever it is that your dream is. And that's something that I found myself helping when it, when it came to kind of, all right, well, how do we do this? Yeah, yeah, but if this works, your whole lifestyle will change and your whole you know, career trajectory will go. No, no longer do you have to work for companies and organizations. You work, you, you're your own person. You've got a lot more autonomy and you can, you can do that. And yeah, you've, your friends will try and bring you back down to earth when you're talking about who's going to play you in the movie deal and everything. But then you, you go, well, yeah, but why not? Why not be interested in okay if you get the book goes well then we get the movie rights and then you, you, you go from there and having those daydreams you know, i think is is quite important and i talked about this on another podcast a while ago when you hit rock bottom or when you fail it can be a really empowering moment and for me one of my lowest points was around my the tail end of university so i'd come back from my, my tour to the solomon islands and i had to finish my arts degree before i was really able to, to, to launch into anything else and I didn't really have a job to go back to. I was doing, I think, about three different part-time jobs, one of which was unloading containers out in Dandenong. It was out of Monash Uni, so that kind of worked where you could scoot out, old-fashioned labouring, unloading bags of linseed or cold stuff. You got paid a little bit more if it was cold. Evidently, I like the cold. Happy to do that. Unloading containers and then ended up working door-to-door sales, selling mobile phone and internet packages to small businesses. Oh, there was probably only about a six-month window where I was doing those jobs. And I worked at a, a reception center as well as a waiter barman, and that was quite fun. But it was those, like being a door-to-door salesman, geez, you learn a lot about humanity and sales and everything. Yet for those low points, I look back now and go, well, that was, that was interesting to go. You, you've had what you thought you wanted, then you, you're in this this crossroads, or you've, you've hit your limits, you're out of money. I think I had massive credit card debt from holidays to Thailand and stuff as well. So you've, you've got damage to your car that you can't afford to repair. So you, you're in that spiral of, geez, I just don't, I have no money. I can't get out of it. But you double down and go, right, well, that means I just work three jobs and live within your means and, and kind of find a pathway and a road out of it. And that having been to that point in your life or that moment, you go, that is quite empowering to go, all right, that was, that was the limit. And I'm, I know there's a lot worse off than having to work as a daughter or salesman, but when you can look back and find those moments and be proud of them and talk about them rather than your successes, that can be quite, quite empowering. Why is that though, do you think? Is it because it, it does kind of teach you your limits? You know, when you, you learn more about yourself, I guess, in going through adversity, is that your thoughts there? Or? Absolutely. So you'll, you'll learn a lot more from, from failure and adversity than you will from success and, and accolades. And most people would have learnt that throughout the pandemic when you really push to that limit either with family or work or just social you would have realized okay i broke or i hit the limit i lost it i couldn't work i, I lost my motivation i went in a, a different space and that might have been for a, a day a week a month or for some people you know a year or two years but when you can realize that and go well that's actually quite normal failing and, and, and hitting a breaking point we all have them you you will at some point hit a breaking point and that might not be expected and I think a lot of successful people gloss over it but they'll have always had a point where they questioned what they were doing and they potentially broke but it was then realizing that no actually now I know my limit I can move forward and move upwards from there and that can be really important and something to not gloss over and not never talk about God and I don't talk about that time look at it and learn from it because it will be a, a moment that probably helped you realize who you really are good and bad of what decisions you made, how you how you looked after yourself or others around you at those low points to then drag yourself out of it or look back and go, that's not who I want to be, who I became when that happened to me in that that, that trauma or that event or, or that 
life circumstance. I want to be better than that. And what am I now going to do when I rebuild to be a better version of myself or better version of company or whatever it is? Mm, no, it's so, so true. All those points about, you know, it reflecting, I guess. And this is a thing we do tend to forget. I mean, unless you are a journaler or, you know, keep a diary type thing, which I've never done that. But sometimes you sort of think back, you think, oh, whoa, I kind of combated this, this and this. And I sort of forgot about that. So it is nice to sort of reflect. And I'm curious on that note, when you talk about, obviously, what we all learned through COVID, 537 days in Antarctica would be tough at any time. But what were some of the hardest things you went through? And obviously, people can read about this in your book, you know, fascinating, <laughs> this whole kind of winter experience. I hate winter. I'm the opposite to you. <laughs> I just want permanent summer. Like I'm solar powered. <laughs> so, But what were some of the biggest things and the challenges you went through and some of those failures, I guess, through that experience? Yeah, I think some of the bigger lessons were around the leadership side of it. So I was the, the station leader down there, which meant that a lot of the times it came back to me, but it also you, you're living and working with your team. And that was exactly the same for everyone. So it didn't matter what role you had on station, you're living and working with your team, your, your boss, but also your peers and your, your, those around you and below you and above you and sideways. So that had its own challenges that weren't unique to me, they were, they were for the whole team. But I've really learned a really key lesson around it was that as a leader, you're only as good as your last decision. And whatever you, every single day, every single scenario, every single issue that we faced, I had to find a way to, to come at it like fresh and open-minded. And, I, and also at the same time, when I didn't do that, which there was more than enough occasions, to admit your faults, go back, reset the relationship with either the individual or the group to say, hey, yep, I know I wasn't right last week and I apologise for what I did here or when I snapped at you or when I've, I've done whatever it is and, and made mistakes and unpack that. And as a group, you can then move forward. And then as a leader, you can move forward as well. And that was something that it was tough. And there were decisions along the way. I had one member of the team, we'll talk about this in quite good detail in the book. There was one member of the team that was really struggling and, and I was struggling to, to manage him as his other boss was as well. And I couldn't quite get it right. And it really played on my mind of, well, could a better leader or a better manager be doing a better job of this? And as much as I had all the support networks around me and we're doing everything to help deal with that, that individual and the group as a whole in terms of those things, but the circumstances we were in for him and all of us, all we really wanted to do at a point was, was go home. We wanted the situation to end. We wanted to be back home as we were supposed to a year after we'd left rather than just in this endless, how long are we going to be down here for? You didn't know how long you were going to be stuck there as such? Yeah, we... We found out in mid-2020, we were told we wouldn't be home by the end of 2020 as planned and that we would be home hopefully sometime in early 2021. But there was also a, a small but not insignificant chance that we would have to stay for a second winter and a second year if there'd been any issues with the one ship that they'd got that could come and get us. And we did talk about it at times and had a plan for it, like we, exactly like we talked about before, you know, plan for, for the worst case scenario. But it was a, a worst case scenario no one really wanted to talk about or, or do anything other than, okay, we've got enough food allocated and we can ration the fuel somewhat to do that. Great. Let's not talk about that until we have to do it. And, and that was, I think, something as well to, to kind of spare some time and some thought for those worst cases, but also acknowledge that I think with the group, there was no perfect solution. From all the other leadership challenges and scenarios I've been in, there generally had been a way out of it where everyone comes home and everyone's happy and it's, it's all rosy. This was a scenario where there was no perfect solution that's going to get through. It was an ugly 
ugly solution at, at times, but overall you look back and go, geez, what a positive experience. We all got home safely and everyone has a, has a great individual and, and collective story to tell as difficult as it was. And, and that was one of my bigger reflections that as a, as a leader and as a group in adversity, it won't be pretty, it won't be smooth sailing, but it'll make you stronger on the other side and, and certainly give you something to look back on and be proud of if you've made the most of it. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a lovely sense to reflect on. I'm curious about if you kind of dig, what is it you learned about yourself in that time? And for me personally, I think, you know, just that, that isolation element would be tough, but you've probably given your background and what you've gone through so much in your career already, you, you're probably pretty resilient with navigating, you know, tricky situations, but this would have been, you know, as you said, t- so totally different again. Resilience is, is something that, that, that I get asked about all the time. People go, you must be so resilient. And you know, everyone's resilient when you're motivated by the right reason to be resilient. And certainly down in Antarctica, I had a job to do. I, I had to lead and manage the station. So for me, you know, quitting wasn't an option. There was only one solution, which was just work your, your ass off to, to get this done and get everyone home safely. But then I, what I realized is that that can take an incredible toll on your own your own mindset and your own kind of well-being so that when I got home, I was so emotionally drained and exhausted from that experience, far beyond ever, anything I'd ever seen in the war zones or anything I'd been in before where I'd, I'd get home and reset pretty quickly and be you know, back out there. This one had taken a, a really big toll on me and I hadn't realized how long that would take to recover and the best ways to recover in terms of Writing about it was was one one avenue, but talking about it, cathartic, yeah, yeah and, and taking that time to be selfish was a, an interesting one that that I got some advice to be there. Like, look, you've spent a lot of time focused on on a team or a group environment. Take some time to, to focus on yourself, which ran contrary to what people would expect when you just got back from being away for a year and a half. They'd expect you to be quite social and quite active, whereas I kind of went into my cave and didn't want to come out for a little bit and. I'd never been like that before, so it made me realise how certain events can certainly change who you think you are and reveal different elements of it. And you either then go, all right, I need to, how do I get back to where I was or how do I get back to a slightly better or different version of who I was as I've matured and grown? Oh, I, I kind of like this yeah. new version. Maybe maybe I'm more, what is it, introverted than I realised. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think people have seen that with the, the pandemic in terms of when they've gone back, they go, well, was my work-life balance where I want it to be? Was I spending enough time with my family? Or, geez, I really enjoyed spending all that time homeschooling the kids or spending more time at the lo- local park. You don't need to go all the way interstate or something on holidays or, or you can go, well, and, and I, I think about this for myself. I used to, you know, in, in 2021 when I was back, my brother and I would meet at the park. There was kind of equidistance between the two of us, so it was still 5Ks between us. And then we'd take his niece, my nieces and where you could kick the footy and then you go, we haven't actually done that really since the pandemic. And I kind of go, well, they were great days out. They were simple family days out. Now, we still obviously catch up and do other things, but it's a bit more involved rather than just the good old-fashioned fun. It's very true. And I think you had so many things through that time, if you reflect, that were lovely, weren't they? The simplicity of it. So you talked about the value being, you know, the most important part of growth and the best teacher if someone's listening and they're, you know, going, okay, yeah, I've just failed or there are, you know, X, Y, Z things that I want to kind of navigate or go through or I can't quite overcome the feeling of that, you know, icky sort of like I failed at it and I feel like shit and I can't quite get over that. Like 
what do you do in that kind of regard of, of kind of navigating? You said when you came back, you had to kind of be selfish and, you know, kind of reset yourself. What are some things that you think people can do to evaluate, I guess, you know, how those potential elements of failure or what what is perceived as failure and I guess that's a whole other conversation the perception around failure and how they can be teaching moments versus you know moments that you have a shame or you know you're embarrassed about or whatever I think like reframing it straight away so you know you don't have to celebrate your failures but not be too ashamed of it and then there's a great saying I heard once you know fail fast fail often but learn from it so you go all right cool I've, I've failed that now I know how that how not to do it great so now I can reset and, well, I say that the definition of insanity or stupidity is repeating the same action, expecting a different result. So don't do that unless, you know, maybe give it a second chance and go, oh, well, it didn't work that day because of the weather or something like that. So do the same thing, different environment, you might get a different result. But otherwise, then step back and evaluate why did you fail and, and unpack it. And you think about a, a debrief with either a sporting team or, or a business or a family after something goes well. The debrief takes 10 seconds. You go, well, that was great. You know, next time we could communicate a little bit better or we could make sure we share the ball more or we could do these tiny little one percenters. But like at the end of the day, we won. But when, you, when it doesn't go well, the debrief will go for, for hours. But a lot of those points would still be relevant to improving a successful scenario or a successful team. And so that's where when you do fail, it'll bring out within yourself that that critique, but also from others who will happily give you advice when asked for it or unsolicited, that'll give you all these these great points of feedback. Now, feedback can be really hard to take, especially for new leaders. It's something that you'll it'll hurt your ego. So you park your ego, take the feedback and go, all right, these are the reasons I failed or these are the reasons someone perceived that it's failed. And they might be right or wrong, but whatever they've said will come from a place of, hopefully they're trying to be constructive, but also they're coming from a place of experience or perspective. So if a member of your team or, or someone around you gives you, you know, what you think is negative feedback, you can unpack that another level and go, well, it's not because they don't understand. It's because I didn't explain it properly or I didn't get the communication model right or we didn't do enough training or exposure or whatever it was beforehand for them to understand why we're doing it and for it to go right and then you can start to go okay great so when we do this again and when we we try a second or third and a fourth or a hundredth time we've incorporated all the elements of feedback we can and there's a there's a great story in the book where about two-thirds of the way through we had to refill the station's water supply using this like some fairly outdated equipment that was due for replacement and, and hadn't been done and we had to pump water 800 meters over a small rise salt water in, in antarctic conditions about minus 20 so it still freezes and you're trying to pump it along and we had a plan on the first day and it didn't quite work and every day we had to revisit it and, and retry and there was certainly constructive feedback and also some fairly negative unconstructive feedback but by the end of that few weeks we'd achieved success and as a group because every day we came at it with like all right well let's find a better way to do this Let, let's improve and some of the failures are the great like great little stories are when the hose exploded and you've got freezing water everywhere and you're trying to pack it up rapidly and it's freezing cold and, you know 40 or 50 kilometer an hour winds and it's getting dark and you're in the middle of an antarctic winter but a they're great stories and great character building things at the end of it but it also highlighted that all right every day you come at it and you improve and you get better and better and better and the reason that's actually my favorite chapter of the book and one of my favorite stories from the whole year because it's it was good old-fashioned hard antarctic work that people would think about you're outdoors in the elements wearing every layer of clothing you can your eyelids are freezing you 
beard hairs frozen to your snotsicles and your beardsicles and you've, you're really up Can't against it. Imagine. I know, but everyone always asks about like, oh, what was your most mag- magical moment in Antarctica? And it's like, well, obviously it's flying in helicopters across glaciers and icebergs, but- But that's rare. <laughs> but obviously it's that. But my favourite real moment is is refilling the station tarn and reservoir the middle of winter and, and, and how- bad we were on day one versus, you know, day 21 or whatever it was by, by the time we finished. And it was that embracing that failure and improving on it each day and having that positive mindset to, to kind of keep going was, was what made it enjoyable. Yeah, it probably gave you that amazing se- a sense of achievement as well and exactly. the teamwork and things, all things coming together. David, it has been an absolute delight to chat to you. What fascinating stories. Thank you for sharing those with us. And everyone needs to have a read of your book. And I'll put that all in the show notes. But it has been an absolute delight. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Michelle. Good luck with the podcast. And thanks very much for having me on. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. Listener.